Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 27th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The British Prime Minister is to meet the President of the European Commission this afternoon when it is expected an agreement will be reached on some unfinished business. The country has just taken part in a giant democratic exercise, perhaps the biggest in our history. Over 33 million people from England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and Gibraltar have all had their say. We should be proud of the fact that in these islands we trust the people with these big decisions. We not only have a parliamentary democracy, but on questions about the arrangements for how we're governed, there are times when it is right to ask the people themselves And that is what we have done. Ten points there for whomever can identify that voice. David Cameron was the British Prime Minister when the people of the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union back in 2016. Almost seven years on, Cameron is just one of the five people to have held that position of Prime Minister since the Brexit referendum. The British people have voted to leave the European Union and their will must be respected. I suppose in time it may well be respected, but this is taking a lot of time and it's not quite over the line yet. Let's speak to local Sinn Féin TD, Rory Murakou. A very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. I think it's expected, uh, probably inevitable, that Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen will meet today and both will sign off on this agreement. Uh, But that's only the beginning of a, a much longer process, isn't it? Well, let's let's be absolutely clear. I suppose we're dealing with the outworkings of Brexit and on some level we'll be dealing with them for a very long time. Um, look, it all looks... We've all said for the last while the music is a lot better. It's highly unlikely uh, Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen would... Uh, it's, it's highly unlikely that they would meet and not come to a deal. So it's very likely that what we've been hearing in relation to the conversations between Maurice Sefcovich and members of the British government, um, and as I say, the ongoing even conversations that have happened between the British government and the DUP, some of which is in the public domain, would, you le- would lead you to believe that uh, 
that we're, that they're nearly there. And I imagine, as I say, that, that there will be a deal. Mm. And this is a deal that everybody needs to see. Um, we, like I'd say, the British government no more need anything that could even be veering in the direction of a trade war. Uh, the European Union certainly doesn't want that. Ireland particularly doesn't want that. Mm. Everybody has no difficulty in relation to the streamlining. We always knew that the European Commission was willing to offer. We we all knew when we were talking, obviously, about green lanes and red lanes and that you would be easy access, obviously, if Britain was trying to deliver goods to the north that were going to be used for the north, but that there would have to be some element of protections in relation to the single market. Okay. Now, we're still getting questions about the European Court of Justice. Not an issue, I think, that has been brought up by many businesses in the North. And um, to a degree, I think it's... Well, apparently, I, from the reports, it's going to have ultimate jurisdiction over this. Uh, but uh, it may take some time before uh, the uh, ECJ is asked to rule on issues as they uh, arrive. Uh, but uh, that could be one of the stumbling blocks because Mr Sunak may sign this deal today, uh, but it'll have to go through the parliamentary process. The Cabinet will have to approve it. There'll be a vote in the House of Commons uh, and then uh, legislation will have to follow. But, of course, the biggest stumbling block of all is on this island and how the DUP will receive it. Well, look, we, we've already heard the line-up for the day that they are to meet, uh, that's, they're to meet in uh, Berkshire, just outside London, um, and I think that's to be Rishi Sunak, Ursula von der Leyen, and it's also James Cleverly and Chris Heaton-Harris, obviously those that are to these negotiations and particularly close with the negotiations specifically with uh, Maurice Sefcovic. I think after that, Rishi Sunak is to have a virtual cabinet meeting and I think all MPs have been told to be on standby in relation to the possibility of a vote. There is the question mark in relation to how exactly this deal needs to be done, whether there is a requirement for a vote um, or whether it can be done through secondary legislation and and by other means. But the fact is, look, we, we all know Richie Sunak's difficulties are the fact, uh, and here, a guy who was on the Brexit wing of the Conservative Party, but there is a right-wing rump of ERG, um, and that that's his main stumbling block, because let's be clear... Mm. That's the European Research Group, a, a group of Tory MPs. Yes, mm. and, you know, they would generally be to the right-wing of mm. Genghis Khan, probably on the right-wing on any issue you can possibly think of, from um, Brexit right through to the protocols, through to um, migration, etc., mm. etc., Right. Um, and look, sometimes it is very annoying that you think that uh, that particular rump within the Conservative Party could be determining um, issues that would have an impact in relation to the island of Ireland. And the DUP could be determining what the ERG group is thinking. Well, but I would say at the end of the day, this looks like it's going for a deal. I imagine like most British Conservative leaders, like most British Prime Ministers, that as much as they may want to take the DUP across the line, I think they will be a secondary consideration. If a British government can get a deal with the European Commission on an issue that they need resolved, like Rishi Sunak has, a, like a lot of leaders at this point in time, has had a lot of issues going on in relation to cost of living crisis, in relation to you know economic matters that are happening, obviously the Ukrainian crisis. And he, like the European Union, does not want any element of um, an economic war. So I believe, first and foremost, that'll be the case. See if a deal is done, and it's up to the DUP to 
to get itself out of a particular hook that it has caught itself on. Look, the fact is, what we want, what here I consider, mm. I imagine even an element of their own support base, um, as much as they may want streamlining and whatever else in relation to the movement of goods, would like to see us getting beyond that point and that there is an executive and the assembly is back up and running and dealing with the issues that matter to the people in the north. OK, That's the DUP may have boxed itself into a corner, if you like, uh, but I imagine um, others would be far more concerned at uh, British rule continuing than the DUP will be. Yeah, well, here, in, like in, in, in what case? What, what, what exactly, what point are you making here, Michael? Well, I mean, the restoration of uh, the institutions, uh, the formation of uh, an assembly and an executive. Uh, if that doesn't happen, and it won't happen as things stand, if uh, the DUP uh, won't take up its seats on the basis that this deal isn't acceptable, uh, well, then British rule will continue. Oh, yeah, but you're talking specifically about direct rule. Well, look, we're all aware what direct rule has been right up into the 90s. Um, we will not be seeing um, a direct rule um, that, that we saw previously. Like We are 25 years into the Good Friday Agreement. I think the preference for most people is an executive and an assembly up and running. Yeah. But, beyond, but beyond that, let's be clear, um, the, the direct rule that existed as I say, prior to an executive and an assembly running is not, uh, and what is happening um, what is happening well, all the major decisions for the people of Northern Ireland yeah. have been made in Westminster, I mean we just had legislation is, is introduced not. to do with organ donation, same sex marriage, abortion, I mean these are the big issues uh, that are, are being determined in London Yeah, at this point in time workarounds are being done and let's be clear like Westminster still has far more powers even if he, than I would like in relation to uh, fiscal powers and such that, that, and I would prefer that these powers were returned to the island of Ireland. I think we all know about the long-term goal that's a far more short-term goal at this stage from where Sinn Féin's coming from um, and that obviously is Irish unity but first and foremost what we need is as I say the executive and the assembly up and running but let's say the DUP are not willing to come to the party like everybody else. Well, then we are in a different set of circumstances. And no, then there will what, be, there'll be a job of work, Michael. Where are we? Uh, I mean, uh, the whole idea of... The Irish government yeah. it will not be accepted. All I'm saying is direct rule, as has happened previously, would not be acceptable. There will have to be an involvement of the Irish government. Are you saying that the rule um, from Westminster at the moment is acceptable and that that can continue indefinitely? No, what I'm saying is... Okay, because the whole idea of the Good Friday Agreement was self-determination, was it not? No, well, I suppose the whole time, the whole thing about the Good Friday Agreement, obviously, is that you protected um, people from a point of view of their, their identity. People could be British and Irish. The whole idea was beyond that, that you would have, yeah, that you would have localised rule and that we created a set of circumstances, particularly from a Republican perspective, which would allow for a case... Um, of we could have referendums that would deliver Irish unity. Like, let's be clear in relation to that. Now, would I like some of that to be clarified in relation to the triggering mechanisms and such? Yes, and I think that will happen. But I think the thing that people, unionists, nationalists and other, what they liked, what they wanted was the fact that they had local politicians making local decisions. Yeah. And I don't think anybody is, wants to go back to a point, well, possibly a, a so, small number of MPs of the DUP. And I would say their MPs rather than their MLAs might be quite happy 
to have rules from Westminster yeah. with, with their vote. So how long, how long will Sinn Féin allow that to continue? Well, here, this is not this is not acceptable in a long term basis. At this point in time, we still have an opportunity for delivering on the executive and the assembly, and that's where we're all focused at this point in time. We are all aware that there is, as I say, a mm. big part of that jigsaw, as much as I don't think it should be, yep. but the DUP have put a big part of that jigsaw to be the protocol negotiations. They look like they are coming yep. to a conclusion. Hopefully that's a conclusion. And the hope that was that, that when they concluded it would be acceptable to the DUP and you could get back to business as normal, now it's looking likely that it will not be acceptable to the DUP and it's going to remain outside of the institutions, not take up seats in Stormont, uh, and that could go on indefinitely, which would continue this situation where decisions are being made for people in Northern Ireland by politicians in London. Well, that's I suppose that's two things. First of all, we don't have the deal yet, and I, I suppose everyone's difficulty with dealing with a British government is you don't have a deal until you have it signed. And in some cases, over the last number of years, particularly with Boris Johnson, even when a deal was signed, there was an attempt to step back from it afterwards and to find means of. Uh, as I say, of changing the rules after they had already been agreed to. Um, but neither you nor me, Michael, know what the DUP are going to decide. I would imagine that the DUP are not going to rush into a decision in relation to this. But if we are dealing with a situation where we have streamlined those issues that exist in relation to the trade, um, as I say, east-west between the North and Britain, I imagine that they will have an opportunity to take a look at this. They can see the advantages. We all know that businesses can see the advantages in relation to the Irish protocol. And then it's up to them to make a determination to join the rest of us, to get an executive back up and running. Um, And as I say, to get beyond the cul-de-sac that they're in. So we all have heard about their purity test. I don't know that any deal would be, it would be possible for them to deliver on that particular test. But it's like every other test that's ever been put there beforehand by any politician. It depends what way you read it. If they are willing to get on with the job of work in the North, it's necessary. And if they see that the issues as pertain to businesses and, um, as I say, and, and whatever other bodies within the North are largely dealt with, then they need to get themselves off the hook. But neither you nor me know what decision they're going to make on a deal that hasn't been signed yet. Mm. But let's be clear, direct rule, long-term direct rule is not acceptable to me, it's not acceptable to my party, it's not acceptable to a significant majority of the population. Define long-term. Like, see, at this point in time, we have to wait and see, like, let's let's be clear. Well, we're over a year now. Yeah, 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 but but first and foremost, there is an opportunity, like, and this... Mm. Irish protocol negotiation has created a, a, was a huge, I suppose, hiccup because of the fact that the DUP had set this as one of the parameters that they needed sorted, right? We will see when this is sorted how willing they are to get on with the democratic process. Okay. But at this point in time, that's the, that we have a possibility of delivering on it. I think we all need mm. to look in that trajectory and all I'm saying, and I'm not going to yeah. set a deadline on it, is long-term direct rule is not workable. Okay. Completely the direct rule has existed before. Okay, but you obviously you're going to have to wait to see what the DUP is telling you about the future of Northern Ireland. And uh, to some extent, or at least for some time, that decision that the DUP makes will have to be respected. Well, the DUP, um, 
we all know how things are constructed at this point in time, and the absolute and the fact that the DUP, like any other major party, can obviously not come to the party and um, to deliver, as I say, the assembly and the executive, which most people want. Now, I think they will come under pressure locally. I imagine there's a significant amount of their MLAs and those people that are employed, even though you know mm, what I mean, mm. and their wider support base that want them to get on with this. Now, their supporters we, we, uh, seem to uh, appreciate what they're doing. They agree with it. Their support has increased, and that won't be lost on the DUP either. Look, there's all, there's a significant amount of, of unionists that vote for the big unionist mm. party anyway, so they they get that, as is the case, and, and at times almost uh, elections can appear as negotiations, mm. so okay. you give those who you want to see negotiating for your, your, yeah. your greater powers, I still imagine there's... Okay, but in 1998, Sinn Féin signed a, a deal which would have allowed for self-determination and two... Uh, 2023, uh, you're now saying to people, it's up to the DUP as to whether uh, we can share power. No, no. What I am saying is that at this point in time, there is the possibility of the deal between the British government and the European Commission, and that the minute that that happens, then it's up to the British government and um, to deliver that within its own and mm. um, within its own framework. And then beyond that, there has to be a conversation between the British government and others with the DUP and the DUP will have to make their own decision and I think the only sensible option is to get on board with the rest of us okay. and to form an and to form an executive. Yeah, well, we'll find out is, shortly. And Sinn Féin yeah. will not allow long term that the DUP or anybody else holds back progress. Well, wow. here, there's always a possibility you can hold back progress but you cannot absolutely stop it. We're in a completely different world. Um, the, mm. the Good Friday Agreement changed things and unfortunately for unionism um, the whole Brexit process and even these protocol negotiations I don't think has made the union uh, any stronger. Okay, it's very early of course in what looks set to be a very long day ahead and uh, I'm sure that uh, there'll be many twists and turns uh, uh, across the day as well for that matter uh, and we'll have a lot more uh, information as we go on. We leave there though for the moment. Thanks a million for talking to us and uh, taking the time to join us on the programme today. Rory Muraku, Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Meath. Michael Reed on LMFM. You may have heard Alcohol Action Ireland is concerned that drinks companies are advertising zero alcohol products to young people in order to get those young people familiar with the alcohol brands and as a Trojan horse for advertising alcohol itself. Uh, let's hear both sides of the argument to this. Uh, Dr Sheila Gilhaney is uh, the CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland and she's on the line with us together with Cormac Keeley, who's uh, the Director of Drinks Ireland. Good morning to both of you and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Sheila, a lot of people like these zero alcohol products. You don't have a problem with them per se. No, we don't. Uh, the, the problem is to do with the marketing of the, the products in areas that are restricted for alcohol advertising. So we have a, a small number, and I really mean a very small number of restrictions on alcohol advertising on, under the Public Health Alcohol Act that basically says that you shouldn't al- advertise alcohol um, uh, on public transport or close to schools or indeed on the field of play uh, during a sports event. And really, as soon as those uh, conditions and those restrictions came into play, what we saw was those alcohol advertisements being replaced 
by advertisements for zero alcohol products using identical branding to the, the alcohol version of them. So we would really say that what we're seeing is uh, advertising by the back door here, you know, advertising of the alcohol brands um, in areas, in those few areas that are actually restricted uh, for alcohol marketing. Okay. What do you make of that, Cormac Healy? Uh, firstly, good morning, Michael. Good morning, good morning Sheila. Um, well, look, I mean, uh, obviously we believe that the growth of, of zero alcohol products and the increasing quality offering that's there is, is a positive development because it is providing choice to consumers. And it's fortunate, unfortunate that, you know, this kind of criticism is, is coming from uh, Alcohol Action, uh, Action Ireland. In these products, we do believe have a clear role to play in supporting moderation. And, uh, you know, the growth in, in, in the category... Uh, is something that should be encouraged rather than discouraged. And I think there's clear demand there. I mean, in, in many cases, consumers and the public are ahead of us on this in, in how they're drinking and, and, and when they're drinking. And the industry is, is simply answering a real shift in, in, in consumption patterns. So I mean, we're, we're surprised that there's such criticism of, of, of these. And there certainly isn't any, uh, as Sheila has said, targeting of, of, of these uh, products as, at, uh, at children. I mean, there are very... I mean, despite what Sheila says about uh, minimal uh, regulations and, and codes, I mean, there are very substantial regulations in place. There are codes in place. And what's really important about those codes, because you can have codes all day long, but there is high compliance with those codes. I mean, mm. and those are independently verified. Okay. Can minors buy zero alcohol products? I mean, th- these products, uh, I mean, uh, the industry at retail, as at, at, um, uh, pub level, uh, do not sell these. I mean, these, these products are not targeted to, to mm. minors in any way. These are products that are uh, have now been developed after a lot of work and innovation to yeah. be aimed at adult drinkers. They okay, but a 15, 14, 15, 16-year-olds can, um, in theory at least, go in and buy one of uh, these cans of beer or whichever. Well, in, in theory, but I mean, the, the clear in, intention and, mm. and the clear... Uh, effort is that uh, such products are not either targeted or sold to minors. Okay, <laughs> children like to uh, look grown up, don't they? And I suppose that's uh, one of uh, the things that uh, we've experienced with alcohol I- itself, but if you can legally buy these products, uh, it-, it has to be uh, logically permissible that young uh, teenagers will. Well, well, I mean, they're not. I mean, look, I mean, I think I mean, we're, we're down into a particular point here. If you step back from this, these mm. are uh, products that have been developed by companies that actually offer an alternative. They offer choice to consumers. They do help with moderation. And that's what we're seeing in the overall trends. I mean, mm. in many cases, we're talking about an outdated narrative here. I mean, there needs to be recognition, I think, that you know, consumption of alcohol in Ireland has dropped by over a third in, in the last two decades. Uh, we are moving into EU norms. It isn't that Ireland is different. But yes, I mean, there is need for continued focus around alcohol misuse, uh, underage drinking, uh, binge drinking. I mean, those are things that, that will and should continue to be tackled. But the overall consumption level of alcohol in Ireland has fallen considerably. And I think we need to recognise that as, as we discuss mm. uh, alcohol issues. OK, I'm sure you do recognise that, Sheila. There has been some 
small reduction in the level of uh, alcohol use in the country, but we're still drinking at a level about a third higher than if we all stuck to the low risk drinking guidelines. So we have a long, long way to go in, in terms of that. When Cormac refers to you know approaching EU norms, I would point out that actually um, across Europe is actually the highest drinking region in the world. So really comparing ourselves to Europe mm. is, is actually not... Are these products not part of the solution though? I mean, I, I know of people who have a, a pint uh, and then they'll have uh, a pint of the same beer but with zero alcohol. We have no problem in, in relation to the particular products. We're not talking about that here. We're actually just talking about the marketing of them. Now, if you go back again to what I was saying about the Public Health Alcohol Act, you know, the purpose of that act was to reduce, in, in relation to advertising, it was, it was to reduce the exposure of children to alcohol advertising. So to me, it seems, uh, you know, inescapable that the industry are actually in those few areas where there is restriction, as I say, on, on buses, on, on, you know, billboards close to schools, uh, on, on playing fields, mm. you know, that's why are we seeing advertising of a product that we know is not suitable for children, as, as Cormac has, has just said. So when, when you, particularly when you look at something like the Six Nations and you see that seamless move between, you know, uh, Guinness Zero on the field mm. to play and then Guinness all around the, the stands. It, it's, you know, what, what children, what people see is just Guinness. But you're giving a, an impression of a sharp practice to circumvent the law that uh, they're putting up the zero alcohol products so that children will become familiar with the brand and that will lead to brand loyalty. Yes, that's exactly what we're saying. And we know that, that um, when young people are exposed to this type of marketing, what does happen is that they become, and the research will show this, is they become familiar with, with the brand and they, ad- they adopt uh, brand loyalty to it. Okay. Uh, I suppose that's not a bad thing, is it, from your perspective, Cormac? Well, well look, I mean, I, I don't accept that there's any, anything of the nature of, of sharp practice in, in this regard. I mean, at the end of the day, this is these are new I mean, new developments, new product offerings, uh, and at the end of the day, producers need to advertise them if we want people to drink them uh, and, and ultimately to continue to work on positive drinking uh, change. Mm. So, I mean, that they advertise is, is, is perfectly normal. I mean, this is, and I mean, I know Sheila has commented on this being a low uh, proportion of the market and there being a high spend in relation to it. These are new, relatively new products to market. Uh, the the growth that we've seen over the last number of years is fourfold in terms of market share. But yes, it remains a low kind of one and a half to two percent share of the of mm. the of the beer market, for example. But when we look at at what is possible here, I mean, we've seen in other countries where this has developed to ten, twelve, fourteen percent of the market really? on, okay. on the continent. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and I mean, we're at early stages, so. Mm. I mean, this is putting it out in, 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 in front of consumers yeah. that there is choice there. Okay. Uh, Sh- Sheila, um, you welcome the Public Health Alcohol Act because it restricts advertising alcohol. Uh, and the reason you welcome that is because advertising works. And if you advertise alcohol, it's going to lead to people drinking alcohol or deciding which brands to drink. Uh, and surely the same applies uh, to advertising zero alcohol products. If you advertise them, people will go out and buy them. Is that not a good thing? 
regardless of what you know people are actually buying, what we're saying is being advertised is the brand of the the alcohol, and you know the the legal definition in fact of the advertisement in in the the PHAA says that advertising means any form of communication intended to promote an alcohol product, whether directly or indirectly, including trademarks, emblems, marketing images, logos. You know, so we know that really what is being advertised here is the brand the and of of the of the alcohol industries. Um, we we could point, for example, to Norway, uh, which has uh, it, it, it does actually have a have complete ban on alcohol advertising. And in the case of zero alcohol products, they can be advertised, but only if they use a completely different branding from the parent brand, because they're recognising there that what is actually happening is when you advertise a zero alcohol product with identical branding mm. to the parent, what you're really getting is advertising of alcohol. Okay, but we've <laughs> a, a, a low. Uh, market, a small market, as you point out in your press release for zero alcohol, and if it could be taken from that figure of one and a half percent that you suggest to that fourteen percent we heard uh, a moment ago, uh, well, I suppose the first thing is that there must be the scope to do that, and that perhaps this is a way of doing it. Well, what we would be saying is that what what you're really seeing is, um, you know, people. They can use these products, of course, and that, that, that's uh, absolutely up, up to people there. But the way that they are being advertised is actually more about, you know, substitution, not so much about substitution, but additionality. So, for example, you would see advertising of, you know, drinking and driving and the sense of using a zero alcohol product and, and being able, able to, to drive. So, What's you know, wrong with that? Been, so nothing wrong with that okay. at all. But, but the point I'm, I'm making is that, um, you know, people wouldn't have been or shouldn't have been uh, drinking and driving anyway. So, w- that uh, and people had other products that they could use. Oh, I know. It's but not about, try it's not try about sit over a glass. Of, try sit over a glass of seven up for a I night. Cormac, you want to come in there? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Just if I could, I mean, I, I don't uh, accept I mean, what Sheila said there. Uh, that it's not about substitution. I mean, you know, and I, I don't know how she can can draw that uh, conclusion. I mean, these products are being advertised now. They're quite new to market. They're being advertised. Uh, as uh, an alternative to consumers, and and as you pointed out too, I mean it's it's amazing that some forms of of advertising, uh, uh, you know, work and some kind sometimes don't. So I mean, the only thing that they will see is the brand and not the zero zero. I don't accept that. I mean, I think there's a clear portrayal, and the rules and codes around this are very strong uh, and clear that you have to uh, throughout any advertisement or any any um, particular marketing show that this is a non-alcohol product and I mean that you know consumers have the ability to see and understand that and I think it actually normalises having uh, a zero alcohol product. Okay we leave it there I think uh, we're going to struggle to reach agreement but thank you both uh, for voicing uh, your side of uh, the argument with us uh, today Dr Sheila Gilhaney CEO of Alcohol Action Ireland and Cormac Healy who's uh, the Director of Drinks Ireland. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Now, just on the issue of zero alcohol products, uh, thanks, Bernadette. Bernadette Chevlin uh, WhatsApping us uh, this morning saying, Michael, I think it's like the vapes. You see all the young people vaping these days, and they came out to help people to stop smoking. Uh, Now uh, people are just taking up vaping uh, and it really is very disturbing to see young people like that going around. uh, Drug addicts, if you like, and it it would make you think uh, there's somebody in the nicotine trade uh, who uh, thought that one through well before the experts did. Thanks, Bernadette, for your message. Uh, Another 
text or WhatsApp uh, coming to us uh, from somebody who says, how about taking uh, or talking about the wall at the top of Peter Street, uh, it's uh, not safe for motorists, uh, it's blocking vision, uh, you can't see what's coming from the far, from the left, uh, the night was, uh, or, or the right was not in the plans, uh, and uh, there's no beauty to it. Thank you indeed, I think that probably uh, is the beginning of World War Three in our telephones this morning. Uh, there's a lot of uh, very strong opinions uh, about uh, that structure. Uh, somebody, Eamon and Dunlear, says, Michael, can we start a campaign to stop this silly phrase, let's be clear? Uh, well, let's be clear, Eamon, we can't. Uh, Dave has been in touch with us. Dave says he, he won't be holding his breath for news of a, a Brexit deal today. We've come close to this point before only for something to scupper it at the last minute. And Dave says he honestly cannot see the DUP going along with what's being proposed and he has huge doubts about Sunak's ability to pull this off. Thanks uh, for that. I think we're going to be hearing about a, a deal. Uh, what that will mean for the North uh, is another day's work. may not, because uh, uh, there are some hardliners, of course, still in uh, the Tories. Boris Johnson could prove to be a significant player in all of this as well. Uh, but Sarah in touch with us about this too, and she says it feels like Groundhog Day when it comes to these talks about Brexit. It feels like we've been talking about a deal being reached so many times uh, and it just never comes to fruition. Uh, it's almost seven years now, Sarah. Anyway, uh, she says she just can't believe politicians in the North have been allowed to get away with uh, this behaviour for so long. Thank you as well. By the way, if you'd like to make comment on the programme like Sarah, you can phone us on 0419832000. That's 0419832000. If you want to ring us today and leave a comment with us, uh, we'd be delighted to hear from you. You can also text or WhatsApp your thoughts to us. Uh, the number Number to text or WhatsApp is 0861800658, and you can email Michael at lmfm.ie. Now we've uh, been talking about uh, sex education and uh, the change uh, to the curriculum, and how Norma Foley, the Minister for Education, has said that parents will be able to opt their children out of uh, the new curriculum if that's what they wish to do. It, it seems as though that may be the position that some parents adopt. Tishuk, uh, more than a thousand people, mostly women, attended a sexual assault treatment unit uh, this year. This is the first time the figure has gone above a thousand. Um, and it's increased by 20% in just a year. A fifth of the people who attended those clinics were children. Uh, reported sexual offences are up nearly 100% in the last 10 years. Uh, the number of rapes are up over 100% uh, in the last 10 years. Carrie, an organisation that works with children, said that there's been a 44% increase in the number of sexual assaults by children on children uh, in just two years. Now, men and women who work with victims of sexual assault um, are calling for the government to clarify their approach and how children will be taught under the new junior cycle uh, curriculum about pornography. Uh, parents are worried that children uh, will be taught that pornography can be benign or ethical uh, for children uh, at a young age. So will you confirm uh, that teachers will give clear ethical guidance uh, to, to children that pornography consumed by children is dangerous and damaging and is clearly linked to sexual violence? I, I think the level of sexual violence in our society is, is truly shocking. Um, and the amount of violence against children and sexual violence against children uh, is even more shocking. Some of the court reports we've been hearing in the last few weeks, um, they're hard to read, quite frankly, and they're almost impossible to listen to, um, that people would uh, commit such crimes against children. And sometimes it's their own parents uh, or their parents um, 
organise it, it really is shocking and almost unbearable to have to try to fathom uh, why these things happen. Um, and I do think it is increasing. I'd like to believe that the reason why we're seeing more prosecutions and more attendances at the clinics is because more people are reporting it and more people are coming forward, but um, I'm afraid that's probably not the case. Um, it is becoming more prevalent in our society and we have to do everything we can uh, to protect people, particularly children, uh, against sexual violence. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm not a teacher or, or an educationist. I don't know what the right or wrong way uh, to educate children about pornography is. Um, I do think children need to be prepared for life and it's better that they're prepared for the things that they're going to encounter um, because they will, um, but I definitely don't think that uh, any curriculum should somehow suggest that it's it's benign, um, because of course it's it's not. Well, that's the Taoiseach, Leo Bradker. He was responding to local TD, Patrick O'Bean, a TD from Eid West, and the leader and founder of uh, the AIN2 party. That's something that you might want to talk to us uh, about uh, as well, because I think some people, uh, uh, well, it seems clear listening to Patrick O'Bean, some people are uncomfortable with what children are going to be taught in school. I think others are uncomfortable at the idea that they're not being taught this in school because if you don't learn it in school, where do you learn it? And I think we already know the answer to that to a large degree that children are learning uh, about sex and relationships on the internet watching pornography. Let's uh, go back uh, to the zero alcohol products. Uh, a, a number of calls uh, still coming to us about this. Liam, thanks for your call. He says that the non-alcoholic drinks are almost as expensive as the alcoholic ones. How is that an incentive to encourage people to make the decision to be the designated driver? Uh, a very different uh, opinion then uh, from Michael who says zero alcohol alternatives are a great job altogether as he puts it uh, he says he was at a work do recently and he had his one drink and then he switched to, to a non-alcoholic option for the rest of the night he says he had just as much fun as he always does and yet he was able to drive himself home and he, he didn't have to wait around for a taxi or arrange for someone else to have to collect him he, he was bright eyed and bushy dailed the next morning and he thinks it's great to have these alternatives available to us. He also believes uh, that the argument being made by Alcohol Action Ireland that zero alcohol advertising entices young people towards alcohol and take up drinking is ludicrous and insulting towards young people. They deserve a little bit more credit than that, he says. Well, thanks uh, for sharing those thoughts with us uh, as well this morning, Michael. And I think uh, maybe to some degree you answered Liam's question about why would you decide to be the designated driver? Uh, Well, you can drive yourself or others home if you have uh, these uh, zero alcohol drinks uh, or saving the cost of a taxi, as the case may be, and all of the other benefits there that you mentioned, Michael, about being bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Many thanks for your call. Just to remind you, uh, if you would like to make a comment on the programme, the telephone number is 0419832000. You can text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at Michael Reed on LMFM. And Garda Siakana has published a menopause guidance document, which it says it hopes will foster a culture in the force whereby, should they wish to, personnel in Angarda Siakana can talk about menopause without fear or embarrassment and with respect for privacy. They also say they hope to ensure that personnel experiencing symptoms of the menopause are aware of the options
options available to them and that they're facilitated in accessing those supports. This is being endorsed by Loretta Dignam of the Menopause Hub. And a very good morning to you, Loretta. Thanks for joining us on the programme today. You're hoping that others will follow suit, in fact. Yes, thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm delighted always to talk about menopause, which has been such a taboo and secret topic for so long. Um, I'm absolutely delighted and uh, welcome what Ellen Gardashia Cohen have done with this. And um, it's fantastic news. And yeah, it would be great if more people organisations in particular um, would follow suit. Um, because uh, women in the workplace um, who are going through menopause symptoms um, feel the need to leave. So one in 10 women say they've left work because of their symptoms. And four in 10, and in Ireland, that's about 140,000 women, have considered giving up their job because of the impact of menopause on them. So we can't afford this talent drain. Uh, we're in a talent-type market. And women in the ages of menopause, 45 is the average age of perimenopause, the lead up to menopause, and 51 is the average age of menopause. And so it's not an older yeah. woman's condition. And we can't afford women at this stage of their career to be walking out of the work- workforce. Right. I think that in itself uh, explains uh, to the rest of us uh, how severe it can be and how difficult it can be at times for some women to cope with uh, menopause. And it seems late in the day that we're coming, uh, given that this is just part of uh, uh, women's biological makeup, it seems late in the day that we're coming up with policies uh, for this. Uh, and I know that you've endorsed what the Guardi are doing and that you work with other companies uh, who are doing something similar. But is it exceptional for companies to take a position like this? I think um, increasingly at the, at the topic of menopause has opened up in the last particularly say two years and it's driven by a lot of celebrities, particularly in the UK coming out and talking about it. But I also think that we're the last generation that are going to put up with this. And so women are actually speaking out. Um, and so a lot more organisations are introducing policies. And a lot of organisations are contacting us to see, you know, what should they do? How should they go about this? And I do, um, obviously, the introduction of a, of a guideline or a policy or a charter or whatever it's called in the organisation is a great first step. But the next steps that organisations need to uh, take in terms of best practice is really about you know, communicating that through the organisation, training supervisors and line managers how to handle a conversation around that, uh, training them about what reasonable accommodations that they can offer in terms of reasonable adjustments because no two women um, are the same and neither are their menopausal symptoms. And it's also about you know trying to foster the culture the appointment of menopause champions is seen as also best practice. And they're not dissimilar to, say, mental health first aiders. Mm. And, and they were um, a very alien concept about 10 or 15 years ago, and lots of organisations have them. But champions are people who will be signposters, a listening ear, who can help embed um, the menopause conversation in the culture so that it just doesn't become like you know a document that sits on a shelf gathering dust. It really does need to... Um, to get down into the culture of the organisation. To appoint somebody, uh, in other words, uh, who would have responsibility for supporting and guiding women in the workplace. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And they can set up social groups in the, in the workplace. They can set up uh, talks, uh, lunch and learns, you know, coffee mornings, anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, and that they would be uh, the point of contact 
for those who maybe feel maybe unable to talk to their supervisor and looking for a bit of guidance or looking to know, you know, what's included in the guidelines of the policy or how they should approach a situation. Um, and yeah, they're, they're a val- very valuable resource and organisations that we're working with have actually appointed them. So organisations like Legal have appointed them, the National Orthopaedic Hospital and other organisations are actually appointing menopause champions. And in the UK, it's seen as best practice and um, the Equalities Commission has actually come out and said that they would, that was something that they would um, recommend. Okay, and I take it some days are are better than others. Uh, Should there be time off allowed for people who have extreme symptoms? Well, I think um, menopause is like any other kind of medical condition. Um, And that, um, you know, whatever your sick leave policy is should apply to menopause. Um, But, you know, I wouldn't, you know, it depends on the organisation, depends on the size of the organisation. It has to be uh, mutually advantageous for the the staff as well as the company. Um, So, but it should be treated just like any other medical condition. And if you're not well to go to work, it should be covered as part of your sick leave. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. For your absence policy, yeah. Mm, sure. you, you believe uh, that this generation will be the last generation that has to put up with this, I think you said. Yeah. Uh, is that because of uh, the fear that HRT is linked to cancer? No, no. What, what I mean by that is that, you know, maybe our mother's generation, they didn't really come out and talk about this kind of thing. And mm. um, whereas now, you know, um, women in this age group are on social media, they're sharing stories with one another. They're just, you know, not going to sit back and say, look, it's OK to suffer in silence with these symptoms because there's over about 40 different symptoms. They affect women psychologically emotionally, mentally, they affect women physically, they affect women in what we call genital urinary, so that's in the pelvic area and bladder, and they can impact it can impact relationships. Divorce and suicide are the highest rates in this age group. And so there's a lot happening at this point. And I just think we're the last generation to actually, you know, put up and shut up and that we're going to seek help. We're going to look for and help, whether it's HRT or whether it's Mm. other ways of treating it. And so, no, and also that um, the the study that was done in 2002, which was the Women's Health Initiative, that study has been debunked by now. And in fact, the authors have come out and apologised to women because the results were misleading and misrepresented. So um, that's kind of old news. And um, now, um, depending on the risks and the benefits, if the benefits outweigh the risks for you, um, 
then you can take HRT. But each woman needs to make up their own mind by mm. getting the facts and getting the information as opposed to the myths. And there's plenty of myths, trust me, yeah. that are out there. OK, well, certainly more women are, are confident uh, to take HRT up to the point uh, where there was a, a shortage uh, because yeah. of uh, the demand. And, uh, and that in itself tells its own story. Uh, but it, it doesn't suit everyone. Not everyone will be prescribed HRT. Yeah, no. Um, so basically, I think, um, you know, the, the fear that was surrounding it in the past um, was misplaced um, and that a lot more women are suitable for HRT than, than would have thought we would have thought in the past. Um, but there are other options. Um, so uh, some women take HRT and it doesn't, it doesn't give them any benefits. So they need to find other solutions. Other women don't want to take it. Other women have contraindications. So they have other health issues that may prevent them being suitable for HRT. So there are other non-medical options, sorry, non-hormonal medical options available. And there's CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy. And we have a therapist in our clinic who's trained in that. The British Menopause Society has said that it's a proven technique. And pelvic physiotherapy can help. And for some people, and sort of yoga and meditation and some of those things can help too. And exercise, diet and lifestyle is, is really the cornerstone as well because and being overweight or obese and mm. um, with a BMI of over 30 puts you at a much bigger risk mm. of any um, of any diseases, including heart disease, stroke, diabetes and breast cancer yeah. than HRT would. So it's about every woman investigating options for themselves. Mm. And there's a lot of herbal options as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, there are um, herbal options, but um, if you go to, which I've done, because I've tried everything under right. the sun before I eventually decided to go in HRT because I was afraid of HRT um, by listening to these scaremongery stories. Um, And I tried everything. I I tried magnets that I put in my underwear, if you don't mind, um, that was supposed to help the cough flushes. And they didn't. They cost me 35 euros in boots. So, um, but you can try sage. Some women benefit from sage. But if you go to a health food shop or a shop like that Mm. and say, I have menopausal symptoms, they'll ask you what your symptoms are and then give you individual treatments for those different symptoms. So you could be taking a plethora of things that may or may not um, deliver benefits. And the key thing to have for women to check is what's the scientific evidence behind this treatment? There's a lot of supplements out there that are maybe not necessary. So, you know, each woman needs to, um, you know, do their, do their homework and um, look into the evidence around what's available around a particular choice. Okay, well, um, impact does fatigue have uh, on women uh, in the workplace? Uh, because if you can't sleep, you're up all night yeah. with hot flushes, uh, you're just knackered the next day, I take it. You sound very uh, knowledgeable, actually. Um, yeah, um, what we found from research, and the Menopause Hub has conducted its own research because there was no data existing in Ireland, the top five symptoms that impact women at work in the workplace that they tell us is the number one is um, actually cognitive. So um, they find memory loss, brain fog, they um, forget words, they forget mid-sentence, focus concentration. And that's in three out of four women, so 75% said the cognitive issues. Second was um, fatigue and no energy, you know, tiredness. And that was in about 66%. And that comes from insomnia because women at this age find it hard to sleep because of the hormones or they get asleep and then they, they can't, they wake up or they can't get back to sleep or the night sweats or the hot flushes, as you said. So there's a multiple reasons why they might be sleeping and that impacts their 
um, their cognitive function as well. And the third area is feeling overwhelmed. So women were totally capable in, in the workplace, you know, before the menopausal symptoms started, so perimenopause and menopause. And, and now they're feeling overwhelmed and maybe um, less confident in doing their job. And then, um, and that's in 57% of cases. Then there's anxiety in 55% of cases, and we know what anxiety is. And then hot flushes are the last one of the top five are 46%. So there's a lot of things that impact the woman in the workplace um, and that she may need support from time to time on. Mm. And that may not benefit her only. Uh, it could benefit uh, the company that she's working for as well, I take it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if, um, if women feel that... Um, for various reasons, they will often lose their confidence um, and feel that they're less than and that they're, um, you know, double-guessing and second-guessing themselves mm. on things that they didn't, you know, a few years prior. Um, and realistically, they're the reasons that women say, I think I'll step back from work or I won't go for that promotion or I'll cut back my hours or I'll leave. It's because they just don't feel that they can continue in the role. And some small reasonable accommodations that don't have to cost the earth could be really beneficial flexible working, mm. more working from home. Working from home has probably been um, uh, a godsend for women because they can adjust their own environment um, during their day when they're at home in a way that they probably couldn't in the workplace. But it could be as simple as a fan on your desk, a caught-out kit in the bathroom, somewhere for women to take a five or ten minute kind of pause and, and break or rest. And it can be temperature control, uniforms. Um, and it, it's about having an understanding supervisor or a line manager where you know you could actually say look I'm having a bit of trouble at the minute with this and um, I wonder you know could I do uh, that could I start a bit later could I finish a bit later and um, etc could I have time off from medical appointments or it, it needs to be time off from work uh, in order to help alleviate the symptoms. Okay, well, I'm glad to see you kind of leading the way uh, in... Uh, this with uh, this policy uh, that they've uh, published and uh, the guidance that it's giving to its personnel, uh, which you fully support. And uh, I think after listening to you this morning, Loretta, some other employers may follow suit. And thank you indeed for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. That's uh, Loretta Dignam of uh, the Menopause Hub. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's talk uh, about uh, the ongoing problems uh, associated with uh, the drugs trade in the Drogheda region. Uh, Labour TD for Louth and East Meath, uh, Jed Nash has come in to us uh, and uh, a very good morning to you. Thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, you've uh, been asking the Minister for Health to introduce a drive programme. Tell us what a drive programme is, if you would, please. It's a, it's a um, focused um, series of actions that will be taken to make sure that you know, Shikana, HSE, the local community and voluntary sector work together to try and develop better ways of dealing with the um, what we might describe as the drug debt intimidation problem, not just in Drogheda but across the country. Um, I've been in, in this studio and at the end of the phone, Michael, on countless occasions over the last few years talking about one of the most prevalent issues related to drug consumption and, 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 and the prevalence of drug taking in the area and in the context of the gang issue in Drogheda uh, over the last few years uh, and, and that, that's the drug debt intimidation piece. Mm, no. Pipe bomb attacks, uh, arson attacks, attacks, um, threats of violence on the street, yeah. you name it. P.O. Smith um, in here a couple of weeks ago telling us about a 15-year-old boy telling a woman he was going to rape her if the money wasn't paid. That's right. And yeah. actually one of the ways this manifests itself, mm. uh, we, we found this over the last few years, 
uh, and we've been dealing with, with, with issues in this regard quite a lot. Uh, for example, if a, if a young man can't afford to pay off his drug debt, uh, the family uh, might you know, get a loan from the credit union, uh, a money lender maybe at very high high rates, or indeed uh, threats might be made against his loved ones, maybe his sister, mm. maybe his girlfriend, partner, whatever the case might be. So uh, this becomes you know sexualised and gendered as well. It's much more complicated than it's ever been. Um, obviously, threats of violence have always been around for somebody who uh, falls foul of a gang uh, or has a debt of some description, but it's much more complicated now. And we've seen mm. this on the streets it's of Rome and right across yeah. the country. Mm. It's yeah. awful. Innocent yeah. people getting caught up yeah. on this. People actually, um, uh, Fasten will, will tell us, you know, uh, 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 in Dundalk, mm. Great organisation, as we know, works uh, with, with families who are experiencing addiction. Uh, I remember an interview um, uh, over the last uh, period of time, I think it was in early January in the Irish Times, where Fasten were involved, and Louise O'Mahony as well from um, the Red Door Project, talking about people being made homeless um, because they, 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 they may leave their home because the home has been targeted. Family has nothing to do with anything, uh, but they're being targeted maybe because a loved one um, owes a, a gang uh, some money. Uh, which you find that as well, uh, and it's been in our experience over the last few years in Drogheda, uh, where maybe young men who owe money um, to pay off that debt, yeah. they're being told, you need to attack that home, you need to attack this individual. Uh, but then, of course, I mean, if they think the drug debt's gone, it's not for me, in fact, escalate. Mm. These aren't people who give you a receipt. Uh, you know, they don't uh, yeah. keep the anxiety uh, profit loss accounts. This is the thing; it's, it's destroying families. There's a multiplier yeah, here. A, a mother with a, a son uh, who has this uh, severe addiction problem that has led to this massive debt, worried about the son and how they're going to put that right. And then on top of it, I mean, how are people not having nervous breakdowns? People are. Um, right. You know, pe- people. People are. People. We've all spoken to people we represent over the years. And dreadful situations, really dreadful. Um, starts off maybe giving giving a, giving a gang some money, um, saying, "Look, you know." Then it multiplies. It could be a few hundred euros. And no, it's actually two thousand euros. Yo, if you pay it as well, sometimes this is the problem. People people come knocking the door again, looking for more money. And the issue here is that while the girls do their best to try and reassure people that they won't be identified that they, they can be reassured that you know their identities will be protected and so on and so forth. Naturally enough, people are very reluctant uh, to, to, to come forward. I mean, I've had experiences myself, not in relation to yeah. drug debt intimidation, but in relation to people anxious to report uh, very serious drug dealing in areas where people find it difficult themselves maybe to go into the Garda station. So we, we may organise a safe space for people yeah. to talk to. Well, they know... Because if they feel if they're, lo- if they're identified going into a yeah, Garda well, station, a, then they, they end up being targeted. If you're a rat... If there's a consequence, uh, and I mean, uh, I know that's sort of street language, but that's where you're at exactly with it. That's human nature. That's yeah. that's 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 the way it goes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we they, and we know it. these fellows will kill you on occasion. I mean, this is the problem. Well, that that's true. So, yeah. really, what what the drive program is about, and and I know that the. Um, Grania Barrow, for example, the Drug Implementation Board was, I think, in the studio a few weeks ago talking about this. And uh, the reason why uh, the drive programme is being implemented in Drogheda is because of the gear and review and the work of the Drug Implementation Board. Now, uh, it was originally, uh, to the best of my recollection, um, requested by the North East Regional Drugs Task Force. There's been some delays in, 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 in getting clarification about when it would start. So I'm happy now that the Minister responded to me to Dahl last week to say that uh, the resources are there. They were made available in the budget. A business case is being put forward by the HSE uh, to the HSE locally to get the funds to do it. A quarter of a million euro for two projects in Drogheda. This will be a pilot project to understand you know, the, the prevalence of this. Mm. 
what what makes it happen, why it's happening, and how people can be, can be helped. So yeah. it's about the guards, HSE, probation service, and others working together to try and make this easier for people to deal with. Mm. So where will you be going if you're being intimidated by a drugs gang? It won't be on Garda Síochána, will it? Well, uh, we don't know. This needs right. to be worked out. But I think the important thing is that the principle of this has been conceded. This needs to happen. Mm. Because there's an understanding that people have a difficulty. Um, you know, It can't just be, a, 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 by the way, a criminal justice or policing response. Um, it may be a case that you, you may be able, in the fullness of time, be able to go to, for example, a youth worker, to probation service, whatever the case might be, say, look, you know, we're having these problems, and then a wraparound service will be will be will be identified for you. This is a pilot. Uh, I don't think it sh- people should overclaim either in terms of what this yeah. can achieve. Yeah. Um, two hundred fifty thousand euro divided by two is one hundred twenty five thousand euro. That may be a couple of staff and a facility, maybe to to, to help people, but. One of the great things about the Draw the Implementation Board is actually people working together. Uh, and that, this I, program, I think, should be a legacy of the Draw the Implementation Board. We'll see how it goes, but it's good progress. Something we've been looking for for qu- quite a while now. It's been talked about a lot. Mm. Uh, so the Minister has now confirmed and at all. The money will be made available. This will happen this year. Mm. Uh, and drugs are still highly prevalent locally uh, and intimidation, uh, I take it, uh, continues to be part of that trade. It does, yeah. We, yep. see, we see it all the time. When mm. I speak to Angara Sheikhana, as I do regularly, you know, we hear about cases. Sometimes we just walk by a, a house in our community uh, and uh, we... we understand what's happened uh, if windows have been put in if a, an arson attack has been perpetrated against the house um, we know what's happening mm. um, it's, it might be low level stuff for some people but for family it can be absolutely ruinous absolutely mm. ruinous mm. Um, you know people have moved out of areas because of, of, of issues like this as I say people have, have have become homeless because they feel they've no option other than to leave their home if you know, because they've got other family members mm. to, to protect and to prioritise. These are innocent families uh, put, in, put in harm's way. Uh, it's a really, really complicated mm. uh, issue. Uh, first time I became aware of this is from a drugs project in West Dublin, uh, this this whole principle. My colleague, Councillor P.O. Smith, has done a lot of work on it. Fasten have done a lot of work on it. Red Door Project and the Drugs Task Force. Mm. So it's 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 a positive move. Uh, and let's see let's see how it evolves. OK, well, I suppose uh, there's a lot of notorious, very violent criminals uh, that uh, have become notorious uh, in this neck of uh, the woods. Uh, many of them behind bars, uh, others dead. Uh, the most recent name on that list was Cornelius Price, uh, who headed up one of uh, the two gangs that were feuding here for so many years um, Joe Mon uh, has told us he, he believes Cornelius Price had a, a son killed because he wouldn't drive the getaway car at a, another murder in Balbriggan uh, um, Is there concern uh, that if Cornelius Price uh, may be buried in County Louth and uh, that there could be consequences as a result of that? I don't know, I, I, I haven't uh, heard that um, but you've You've captured very well the the, the, the the dangers associated with that individual uh, who uh, had uh, an extensive record, um, uh, uh, if I could put it like that, well known to Angarda Shiakana. Um, of course, the, the difficulties with, with the dynamics of, of, of gangs is that there's always somebody prepared to take somebody's place, regardless of the effectiveness of the you know Garda Shikana response the the, the 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 criminal justice response. Um you know there are people that have been sentenced for um association with um the lead up for example to uh, the cruel taking of the life the barbaric murder of, of, of Keen Mulready Woods. I think the Gar- and Garda Shikana are, are on top of this uh, but they always need yeah. to be very, very uh, vigilant. Um nobody knows what's around the corner. 
Um, but um, Gary Chicon have been on top of this over the last couple of years. Yeah. I've every confidence in them. And we're uh, going to see the establishment now of a citizen sem- assembly on, on drugs, uh, and that'll make recommendations. Uh, I think there's already a lot of people uh, who have their own views on what they should be recommending. Uh, we've heard from Aon O'Reardon, of course, uh, who's been leading this for your party, talking about decriminalising a, a lot of the drugs. Would that be the same view that you hold? It, yeah, it is. <coughs> it's a complicated area, but it's the same view, by the way, that 50% of the Irish population hold, according to Red Sea poll yeah. and, the, and the business But you'd post still be buying the yesterday. drugs off these characters. Like That's the problem, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, well, see, you, you start, though, with, 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 with decriminalisation, uh, and that then could lead to maybe a potentially, um, and, and we've yet to figure this out. Let's see what the Citizens Assembly come back with. They, they, mm. They've been good at dealing with very thorny issues, like for example, marriage equality, uh, like repeal of the eighth, very complicated um, so- social issues. And this is a really complicated social issue, Michael. You start off, though, by taking a he- health-led response to the difficulties that people who misuse drugs are experiencing. And you don't criminalise them because this predominantly is a class issue as well. Uh, it's working class Men, predominantly young men, caught up on this, mm. uh, taking drugs. There's a market for drugs. Yeah, but they'll still that. end up in debt. They'll still be intimidated. Their families will still be intimidated. So the gangsters will still yeah. uh, be <laughs> looking at their bank accounts what, what, what uh, you do, and, though? and trying to count the amount what, what of money. You, that's true. Yeah, what yeah, what yeah. you do, though, and again, I said earlier on, nobody's overclaiming mm. yeah, the yeah, effect yeah, of the yeah, drive yeah, project yeah, will yeah, be. Yeah. It's one piece of a very large jigsaw. Nobody's overclaiming either uh, what decriminalisation could potentially achieve. But I think after a period of time, uh, it could uh, see a situation you know settle down where you potentially then look in in the future about legalisation of some products, regulation of some products, taking that out of the hands mm. of gangs uh, because we know this is a very very lucrative market. They're not killing each other over drugs; they're killing each other over the money mm. that they generate from the selling. Do you think that that, that the, the problem in going to legalisation is that it's an argument that can't be won at the moment? Uh, I, I think it is, and we have to be brave and courageous about this because nobody can say that this so-called war on drugs mm. is being won. It's been fought on the streets of our town over the last few years. Mm. Uh, it's some other town next. Uh, it's happening all of the time. So we need a, a radically different way of approaching this. Drugs are here. Um, whether we like it or not, uh, people are taking drugs. I mean, we we we, we heard last week my my colleague uh, Deputy Aaron Aaron was vilified by some by saying it's probably fair to assume that politicians take drugs, journalists take drugs, mm. doctors take drugs, mm. nurses, members of a guard of take drugs. Mm. Why do I say that? I don't have any evidence to say that, but they're human beings, mm-hmm. and with all with all their flaws, mm. uh, with all their positives and minuses, uh, so it's safe to assume that. You know, every cohort of society takes drugs to one, in one form um, or, or another. But I think what we do is we start with decriminalisation. I say that because we need to stop stigmatising people who are taking drugs. If you're taking drugs and you're an addict, you're unwell. You need a health response, not banged up in jail with a criminal record that will see you, for, you know, make it difficult for you to get a job, to travel, so on and so forth. Especially for people at a young age, if they make a mistake or two. Uh, and I think we need to be just, just, just need to grow up uh, okay. in relation to that. All right, okay, strong way to put it. Uh, thanks for coming into us uh, this morning. That's uh, Labour TD for Louth and Eastmeath, Jed Nash. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. New legislation making its way through. 
through the Oireachtas will mean that victims of domestic violence will be able to take some time off work if they need it, in the same way that sick leave works. Now, this has been broadly welcomed, but as you heard on the programme last week, Women's Aid has some concerns about the legislation. We became really concerned when we learned that it looked like the law is going to treat this pay the same way as sick leave, which is a partial day's rate, um, which firstly is more difficult to calculate for employers. Um, And we really, really strongly feel that uh, this limited provision, which is only five days maximum over 12 years uh, in in law that's going to be reviewed after two years anyway, that it should be the full day, the full paid rate, so that it can have the the benefit that it's supposed to have. And you believe it should be 10 days instead of five days? We also did advocate very much that it should be 10 days. And in fact, the law, when it was first drafted, did um, contained a provision for 10 days. Now there was some lobbying from the employers' organisations and that then got reduced to five days. Right, that's Sarah Benson of Women's Aid. Let's uh, speak uh, to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on workers' rights. Louise O'Reilly is on the line. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, this uh, goes to the final stage uh, of uh, the process in uh, the Shannon this week and it appears as though there's going to be some amendments made. Well, that's what we're hoping and that's what we're hearing. So what Sarah Benson in your clip there was referring to was a piece of legislation that I brought into the Dáil, uh, which would have provided for a full rate of pay and 10 days. And 10 days is, is the norm. If you, you talk to the, the trade unions, they'll tell you that 10 days is, is not just international best practice, but also what is being negotiated here by trade unions um, as the kind of the base level. The government have introduced their own legislation, which cuts that in half. They're only given five. And now uh, as part of it and introduced at very much at the last minute was this amendment that it would align with uh, with sick pay, which is only a partial um, rate of pay. 70%, so, isn't it? 70, exactly. Yeah. And what yeah. we've done is we've tabled an amendment um, which would mean that it was paid at a full rate, uh, at a full day, a full day's rate of pay. And we're hoping now that the government will either support our amendment, which would be the simple thing to do, or bring forward their own amendment if that's what they, they want to do. But we just want to see this changed. And there is some indication that, uh, that there's a movement on the party government here, but we want to make sure that this is done and done right. And hopefully now at the, at the Shannon stage, as we say, at the very last minute, which shouldn't be really, uh, this will be done. But I think you know, for the benefit of your listeners, it's important to understand why this paying it at a reduced rate uh, could cause a problem for the victim, um, him or herself. And, you know, we, we usually say herself, but obviously there are men and women can be the victim of um, domestic abuse. So generally what, the, what Women's Aid are saying and other organisations is that if you are in a coercive control type situation or a domestic abuse situation, the person who, the, the, the perpetrator, will look at your pay slips and will see that you have taken this time off if there is a, a dip in your money. And that will alert them to the fact that you might have taken time off to maybe talk to a support organisation or maybe talk to a solicitor or, you know, that, that, mm. uh, that you, you wouldn't be able to take that time unknown to your abuser. It's a very small number we, we hope that will ever uh, be in this situation but I think it's it's important that we get this legislation right for, for the victims. Okay and I, I did read uh, in the Irish Examiner over the weekend uh, that the government is uh, going to uh, bow to that pressure that have been coming from uh, groups like Women's Aid uh, on the pay issue that 100% pay per day that you take off. Uh, what about the number of days? Well, the government have, have set the number of days at five, 
But it, it's a bit, this is a bit strange now, and Michael, if you'll just indulge me for a second, yeah. because in 2021, uh, Simon Harris, as the Minister for Further and Higher Education, and I launched the DV Leave policy in, um, in, in the University in Galway. Right? And that set at 10 days. And then the minister sent out a letter saying to the other colleges that they should follow suit. And my understanding is most of the other colleges and universities have now adopted this policy, which is 10 days. But then the government come in with legislation and they say, no, it's, it's only five. Now, to me, that sends a very mixed message, particularly if you're a public servant. So if you're working in the HSE, it's five days. If you're working in uh, NUIG, it's 10 days. And I don't understand why they, they cut the number of days in half. My bill would have provided for 10 days, which when you talk to the unions, they will tell you that's what's been negotiated. So that's what's in place in, in Vodafone and in other big companies where this has been uh, where this has been negotiated. So we don't know why the government... I've, I've asked the minister um, several times uh, on this, why he cut it in half and, and he hasn't given a satisfactory explanation. And I think it's it's worth bearing in mind, Michael, like this is a very small number of people, thank God, that will ever need this legislation. Do you know, it's not, we're not talking about large numbers of people or huge numbers of days, but we are talking about, um, you know, a, a safeguarding, a, a piece of legislation that would be very important in terms mm. of safeguarding people. Because if you are in a domestic abuse situation, having your own money, having your job and your own money can often be, uh, you know, a, a, a of benefit to you if you are trying to to get away you know mm. if you if you are and you want to you want that independence having your own job i think is important and you know that was why we wanted to see it set at 10 which is regarded uh, internationally and in uh, many private sector companies as the norm but look you know the fact that the government have taken the the legislation that, that i had introduced and they've incorporated it into another piece of legislation which you know is a bit convoluted but look it's good that they have done it that they responded to the the pressure from Sinn Féin and from Women's Aid yeah. and other organisations uh, including employers obviously and I think that, that that maybe they won the argument on the five ten days and that's and that that's that's as maybe but I do know also from talking to um IBEC and other employer representative groups that they want to see this le- this legislation come in because you know they want to be able to provide that support and a lot of companies in the private sector they're doing it anyway mm. and you know because this is a very competitive uh, a very competitive labor market in some sectors and they want to be able to go out to the labor market and say to people we'll come and work here because we you know we care about our workers and we have put this in place and again I want to stress it is a very small number of people but for those people who need this this is a very very important um, intervention very yeah. important support yeah. that they'll be able to access yeah, well, I, I mean, I don't think anybody would ask for domestic violence leave lightly, would they? I mean, it's... No, no, no. no and we actually had this discussion so that the government were, were talking about introducing an element of proof into it. Um, and I raised this with um, mm. with the Tarnished. Well, he was a Tarnished at the time. He's a Taoiseach now. Um, and I think there was kind of widespread... Uh, you know, concern about that there would have to be an element of proof. I mean, how can you prove, you know, coercive control, financial abuse, there's all sorts of elements 
to uh, domestic abuse that that you know it's it's not all a, it's not it's not always just physical violence although it's that as well and you know that I, I was very glad to see that the government stepped back from that but it did take a bit of pressure to get them to step back from that but they did step back from that which was which was um, a very positive move I think you know and again you know this is really important legislation I really want to see it um, go through as I say the government had an opportunity in uh, in 2018 and again in 2021 to pass Sinn Féin legislation they didn't do that that's fine they want to do their own legislation that's fine if we had moved when Sinn Féin brought the legislation in, it would be law by now. But it's, it's even mm. though it's it's late, it is better. Um, you know, it is good that this is coming, and, and it is a very positive thing. And we've worked with the government to to steer this legislation through, and we've tried to um, we've tried to amend it to make it stronger and to make it better for for victims and survivors. But some of those some of that was resisted by the government. But I'm really glad to see that they have actually, um, or they they certainly are signalling that they're going to do a U-turn um, this uh, this week in the Shannon, and that they're actually. Going going to accept that it should be paid at a full rate of pay. That's the right thing to do for the for the victims. Yeah, well, it's also, uh, I think it's it's an important message to send about the you know the support that is there for for for, for people. Yeah, well, it'll just uh, give people the space to um, to act uh, in a situation where they're being terrorised, but to do that safely. I think that's the argument uh, for the full one hundred percent days pay instead of the seventy percent pay, as you say, because uh, and also to be able to, to keep their job. Yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, I. I I'm a former union organizer and you know you would have people come to you in in this situation and there might be someone in the in the office or on the shop floor that they that as you say people know is is in a domestic abuse situation, but there's nothing to offer them by way of you know mm. like in, in nothing tangible to offer them whereas this means now that you can go to someone and say, "Look, you know this leave is here for you, and you know you don't have a situation where where victims can't they can't articulate what they need. There's no conversation about it. So they end up missing days and getting into trouble in work when very often work is, is the lifeline that they need. So this gives the employer the um, you know the framework and the statutory obligation as well to be able to provide this leave for their workers. And I hope as well, and, and I want to say fair play to you for covering it this morning, and it's not a subject that you shy away from covering, which I think is really, really good. We need to have this conversation because it suits the perpetrators, if this is in the shadows and if there is a, a shame associated with it, we need to drag this out into the open and to say to, to victims they have nothing to be ashamed of, that the supports are going to be there and the shame is all on the perpetrators, the shame is not on the victim and that the more we talk about it and the more radio shows like your own bring this bring this issue up, the more we are speaking really loudly to victims and saying we hear you and we're here to support you and you have nothing to be ashamed about. The shame is all on the perpetrator. There is no shame on the victim and we're not going to be afraid to, to talk about this. It's the fact, it's the reality, but it won't be whispered in corners anymore. We'll, we'll bring it out and make it a, a workers' rights issue and we'll give you that, that right to the time off, which I think is really, really important. Oh, absolutely. Well said. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning too. That's Louise, O'Re- I beg your pardon, Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on workers' rights. Michael Reed on LMFM. The latest homelessness figures were published on Friday. 11,754 people without a home in emergency accommodation. It's a figure the opposition says will soar and there'll be a tsunami of evictions. 
if uh, the current ban on evictions is not extended past the end of next month. The government is concerned about doing that, though. They believe that because of constitutional property rights, there could be some legal challenges to such a move. And it is complex. I think you have to look at the context as well, that since 2016, um, 14% of tenancies, private tenancies, have been lost are gone, 44,000 uh, in total. That's a very serious issue, and we've got to look at why that is happening. Uh, we are actually in the process of carrying out a full review of the rental sector, uh, a really deep dive in that space, because whether some like it or not, and I'm a firm believer in, in provision of social housing, and I'll, I'll turn to that momentarily, um, we also need a functioning private rental sector. Um, and you, you do have to genuinely make sure that measures that are taken don't lead to further flight and reduction in uh, stock and in housing capacity in that space as we're building up the stock on the other uh, on the other side. And that is important. It is important, the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, says, but a decision has not yet been taken. The Cabinet will discuss the issues involved uh, and reach a final decision in the coming weeks. And we'll do that in a very responsible way. And we'll do that based on legal advice as well. I'm a TD as well in Dublin Fingal. I meet people all the time in, in my own constituency and indeed right across the country, people who are struggling in the private rental market. And this is a new phenomenon and it is a, a very difficult issue to grapple with. All right, let's get some advice for the government now. We're joined by Father Peter McVerry, Jesuit priest and homeless campaigner. And a very good morning to you, Peter. Uh, and thanks uh, for joining us on the programme. What would you say to the minister and the government? Yep. I would say they've had years to get legal advice on this. There are many, many practitioners would say that there is no legal impediment to extending the ban on on, uh, on evictions. Uh, if there is some legal impediment, let's pass the law. Let's send it to the president. Sorry, just a minute. Okay. Let the president send it to the Supreme Court and sort it out once and for all. I don't see why they have to delay. Now, unfortunately, the numbers of uh, homeless people have gone up, even with the ban on evictions. Yeah. We might, it might be argued, and probably is true, that without the ban, it would have gone up even more. Part of the reason for the increase may be that... Uh, the ban on evictions wasn't, wasn't total. If a tenant got an eviction notice in October before the ban came into place and that eviction notice was to run out in January, they could still be evicted in January. Mm. So it wasn't a total ban on evictions. Okay, uh, but it, it worked for some people, I take COVID. it. Sorry? I, I say it worked for some people. It stopped them from being uh, evicted uh, because the the shot Leo Radker said it, it didn't work because of the rise in the number of people who were in emergency accommodation. Well, it, the rise could have been much, much more. Mm. And we know that if they fail to extend the ban after March, we may see a tsunami of evictions and the numbers of homeless people may increase substantially more. During COVID, it worked. But there was another thing during COVID that uh, made a big difference. And that was Airbnbs came back into use. At the moment, there's about a thousand residential properties, landlords' properties advertised, but there's 25,500 Airbnbs advertised. And uh, 
during COVID, those Airbnbs were lying empty because there were no tourists. Mm. And they were many of them were brought back into the private residential uh, sector. So the, the government have committed to introducing legislation to make it illegal to advertise an Airbnb unless you're registered and, if necessary, have the requisite planning permission. I think that could bring a substantial number, maybe 12,000, 15,000 Airbnbs back into use. Uh, but there's, the pace of legislation is just so slow. Yeah. I think that legislation could be passed in a week. And I think that would also make a substantial difference uh, to, the, to the number of homeless people. There's two problems with homelessness. One is housing homeless people. We're doing that as fast as we can, but as you say, the number of residential units available is limited. But the other problem is preventing more and more people coming into homelessness. Mm. The eviction ban would prevent people coming, some people coming into homelessness and bringing the Airbnbs back would enable many homeless people but, uh, to get into permanent accommodation. What about the argument uh, that the eviction ban could actually lead to, to some people becoming homeless, whether that's a, an increase in the numbers or not, because of the unintended consequence of it, uh, where people are coming back from Dubai or wherever it is and they want to return home, but they can't move into their own property and they can't find somewhere to live. So yeah. they say, uh, to hell with it, and they sell up. Well, I've always argued that there ought to be exemptions from the ban on evictions. As you say, I know one landlady who has came, come back from Dubai, can't move into her own property. I think that's very unfair on her. Uh, there should be some fast-track process whereby a landlord who can show that it will cause them serious com- com- uh, consequences can get an exemption from the ban on evictions. I would support that. Uh, certainly, yeah. Okay, and landlords say they need more supports. Uh, just if you could react to that figure that the Minister well, mentioned in the clip, 10% of private tenancies uh, gone from the market. That's the equivalent of 44,000 units since 2016. Is that to do with the value of property or is it because it's just too much bother to rent it out? I'm not sure. I think my own guess is it's to do with the value of property. The uh, house prices are reaching their peak, and I think a lot of landlords are cashing in there before house prices start to drop again. So I think it's to do with the value of their house. Uh, But there also may be a lot of bureaucratic uh, uh, legislation that landlords find difficult. It's not to do with the fact that landlords aren't making a profit. Rents today are approximately 50% higher than they were five years ago. Mm. So... Landlords are making a lot more money today than they were five years ago. So I don't think the argument that landlords need more incentives and more tax exemptions, uh, uh, I, I don't buy that argument. I would argue, I would favour landlords getting tax reductions provided they also reduce the rents uh, for their tenants. And that's a win-win situation. If a landlord reduced the rent by by one third and got a 50% reduction in the tax they pay on their rental income, that's a win-win for everybody. It's a win-win for the tenant, it's a win-win for the landlord. Mm. And we're also hearing a lot about targets as well, that they're well below what they should be at. The housing agency saying we should be building 62,000 houses a year. Ronan Lyons of daft.ie saying we need 250,000 houses. 
I think that argument is 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 not is not is it is valid, but my concern is not with the total number of houses built. It's with the number of social and affordable houses that are built. Many of the houses currently being built are completely out of range of ordinary people. Uh, and my concern is with the building of social and affordable housing, which ordinary people can, can move into. And that's way behind the targets that were set in the Minister's Housing for All strategy. So when I hear about the number of houses uh, needed to be built, I want to know how many social and affordable houses uh, are being built, not the total number of houses. Yeah, well, I suppose 10 years ago we were hearing uh, from a government uh, that was promising to sort this problem out. Uh, but give us time, they said. 10 years on, uh, the result is 1,609 families, 3,500 children almost, uh, who are in emergency accommodation. We could do better, could we not? We certainly could. What discourages me is the lack of ambition in the Housing for All strategy and the slowness uh, of, uh, of, of executing it. Uh, the government have committed to buying 700 modular houses. I'm saying buy 7,000 modular houses. You could have all of those up and running by the end of this year. Uh, the, the modular houses, the first batch were supposed to be in place by November. Now they're not in place yet, and uh, it will be another month or two before they're in place. So I'm concerned about the slowness uh, of achieving even the limited targets in the Housing for All strategy. Okay, well, it's uh, the the numbers of people who are homeless certainly uh, something for us all to be uh, very ashamed of uh, because uh, it is a societal responsibility. Uh, I'm sure you'll agree, Peter. But I have to leave there. We're out of time. Thank you for your time. Thanks for joining us as always. Much appreciated. Uh, that's Father Peter McVerry, Jesuit priest and homeless campaigner. Maggie McGuire research today. Chris was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme. Tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.